Hi, welcome to the Vineyard Altoona podcast, where we attempt to equip people for kingdom release. If you have any questions or just want more information, you can visit our website at vineyardaltuna.org or any of our social media platforms at Vineyard Altoona. And now, here's Derek with the message. Hey everybody, welcome again to Vineyard Altoona. My name is Derek. I'm the co-senior pastor here and I'm so glad that you've chosen to join us. I hope this is a beneficial uh, time for you. If you're new, I especially would love to welcome you. Hopefully sometime we can get coffee or something like that. Uh, Before I jump in, I do want to remind you all of just a couple of things. We're like fast approaching Easter. Uh, It's in two weeks. Uh, If you're watching this the day it airs, uh, April 4th, and the big news for us is that we're going to meet in person April 4th, uh, that's Easter, at the Salvation Army in the basement where we met uh, before. If you need information about how to get there and all that stuff, please let us know. The other big thing about that, we're going to have a baptism that day. And baptism is one of my favorite things, my all-time favorite things. If you need to be baptized, listen, if you have not been baptized following your decision to give your life to Jesus, you need to be baptized in obedience to your Savior Jesus. And so if you need to be baptized, I would love to baptize you uh, on Easter, uh, April 4th. Uh, please let me know and, uh, and we'll kind of communicate about some of the details with that. But it's going to be a really great time. So uh, with that, I'm going to go ahead and get started. I just got my second COVID vaccine shot, like uh, just got it a couple days ago. And uh, so I'm a little foggy, so bear with me. uh, And hopefully this makes some sense. Uh, So let me start with just tell you, Peter Wasson was a a psychologist who uh, he studied the way people reason uh, to making decisions. And in 1960, he published this study Uh, basically to display failure in human reasoning. And the study became known as the 246 task. And in essence, what he did was he would have an evaluator who would evaluate someone else. And the evaluator would give this person a sequence of three numbers, two, four, and six. And the way it worked was that this person would be told that this series of numbers conformed to some rule. And so that person would form a hypothesis about what rule the numbers 2, 4, and 6 followed. The rule actually was just any sequence of increasing numbers. Once the person had come up with their hypothesis, the evaluator would show different sets of numbers that also conformed to the the, uh, increasing sequential numbers. But once the person had formed a hypothesis about how these numbers related to each other, it became very difficult for them to adjust their hypothesis based on new information. So basically what he discovered is that once people have formed a hypothesis, they tend to only adopt information that confirms their hypothesis while discarding any information that contradicts it. And from this test, we got the term confirmation bias. And what the study demonstrated is that it doesn't matter who you are, you have a confirmation bias. Now, confirmation bias, just so that we're clear, is it's a human tendency to adopt information that supports our conclusions 
while rejecting information that contradicts our conclusions. Now, if you've never heard of confirmation bias, you're probably aware of it in other ways. For example, your social media feed is just one giant uh, functioning operation of confirmation bias. Everything about your social media feed is engineered to feed your confirmation bias. If you've never seen it, there's a Netflix documentary called The Social Dilemma. And The Social Dilemma, they talk about how what, when you like something on social media, you give it a thumbs up or you know whatever all the buttons are they have now. Uh, when you like something, the, the mechanism creates a picture of what they think you are. And then they feed you things that they think you'll agree with or they think you'll like. It's how you, in this past election season, we could have people on, smart people, on both sides of the political spectrum who would refuse to see truth on the other side because everything about their, their uh, social media feed was feeding them only things that fed the confirmation bias. And so, like I said before, everyone has a confirmation bias. The question I want to look at today is, are you aware of how your confirmation bias affects your relationship with God? Are you aware of it? We've been in this series for Lent that we've called Have Mercy on Us. And I told you in the beginning that Lent is a season for repentance. It's a season where we intentionally open ourselves to God and allow him to search us for things that don't align with who he's called us to be. And in this season, when he calls something out, our hope is that we would surrender it to him and turn from it. This season is intended to prepare us to not just come crashing into Easter, but to intentionally prepare ourselves to receive Easter anew. In the first part of the series, we looked at Micah chapter 6, but now as we're two weeks away from Easter, we're going to shift gears and go to the story of Jesus as it leads up to his death, burial, and resurrection while we keep with the theme of repentance. Let's pray and then we'll open God's word. So, Lord, I do welcome you into this time and into this space. And, God, even with the fog that I'm feeling at the moment, Lord, I pray that you would lift it and, Lord, that you would use me to say something of clarity. God, I pray that you would speak your words through me, Lord, that, that all of you and none of me would be seen. God, would you speak to us in ways that we may miss you in ways that we would be tempted to overlook you. God, would you give us grace to hear your invitation to repentance and respond? Lord, I pray that you would put power on this message in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to look at John chapter 11. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. Uh, while you're doing that, let me give you a little bit of context about what's happening in John chapter 11. At the very beginning of John chapter 11, the, fr the dear friend of Jesus, Lazarus, uh, Mary and Martha's brother, is sick. And Jesus finds out that Lazarus is sick. And instead of rushing off to go help him, what Jesus does is he stays with what he's doing for two more days. And then he tells uh, his disciples that, that 
Lazarus is dead. So then he goes, and of course he finds that Lazarus is dead. But all along, he intends to raise him from the dead to display his glory. That people would come to a knowledge and a belief in Jesus because they've seen resurrection, uh, the resurrection of Lazarus. And so uh, Jesus does this. He gets to, to, to the tomb and he calls Lazarus out of the tomb and Lazarus walks out. And everybody's astonished that Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead. And our passage picks up right there, verse 45, right on the heels of this, uh, of this um, amazing display. Here's what we read. This is verse 45 of, of John chapter 11. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Then one of them, named Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God, to bring them together and to make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. I don't know if you picked it up or if you saw it, but this story is a picture of confirmation bias. Let me explain. Jerusalem was under Roman rule. So the Romans were in charge of Jerusalem, but they allowed the Jewish people generally to govern themselves so long as they kept order. This, this group called the Sanhedrin was Jewish leaders, a, a well-to-do body of, of people made up of 71 people who would judge uh, cases in, in Jerusalem. And if you, if you sort of want a picture of it, think of like the Senate and the Supreme Court smashed into one. So it's a body of people who will try cases. It's the high court. The president of the Sanhedrin was the high priest. The concern that they had was if Jesus were to continue doing the things he was doing, people would believe in him that would result in division, causing the Romans to overtake the home rule situation. And of course, they couldn't let this happen because it would make uh, the, the, their expectation that was that God was going to rule and reign again in Israel, and it would be impossible if the Romans destroyed the temple and took over. And so, in essence, the concern of the Sanhedrin was that Jesus would cause them to lose their plot, to lose their power, to lose their plan. What's worse is that the high priest, Caiaphas, is in charge, and he would be the highest person in the land, the one who would be most looking for the promised Messiah. And when faced with a man who claims to be the Messiah, he advocates killing Jesus because he didn't act the way they expected the Messiah to act. 
all through the book of John, all the way up to this point, Jesus keeps telling them, I am the Messiah of God, over and over and over. He keeps telling them. He keeps saying, I am the truth. But when it comes to surrendering to the truth of Jesus and giving up power, the Sanhedrin and the high priest choose to protect their power and kill Jesus. Confirmation bias causes them to miss Jesus. Friend, I don't know where you are in your Lent journey. You know, we started this a few weeks ago, and we've been trying to posture ourselves that God would call us into repentance. You know, and I don't know what areas of your life that God has put his finger on. I don't know where God has invited you into repentance. But what I do know is that frequently when God confronts me with an invitation to repentance, my own confirmation bias kicks in and I begin to defend myself and my actions. You know, when I've been selfish or rude or disrespectful, a lot of times God will tap me on the shoulder. He'll say, you know, you need to go back and ask for forgiveness for the way that you acted there. And almost always, I wish this weren't so, but almost always my immediate response is to shrug it off and justify my actions. Almost always. That's how it starts. What it feels like to me to be invited by God into repentance often triggers in me a defensiveness. And maybe that's true for you too. Maybe you experience that. That when God calls you to repentance, your first reaction is to defend yourself. You know, perhaps you've been opening yourself to God and in this Lenten season and you've been confronted with how you dishonor your parents. And your immediate response is to justify yourself that you act that way because of how they've treated you. Or maybe God has confronted your attitude and your action toward sex. And your immediate response is to justify it, saying, you know, the Bible was written in a different time, and I have needs, and nobody really cares. But you justify it to yourself. Or maybe God has confronted your attitude towards immigrants, and your immediate response is to justify it, saying you'd think differently about the ones who came here legally. You know, I don't know what God is confronting in you this season, but I'm fairly certain that when he does, many of us, myself included, included, have a similar response. Even if it's only for a minute, we get defensive, don't we? Don't we get defensive? Our confirmation bias kicks in and we miss the invitation of Jesus because it runs against the grain of how we're living our lives. Does that happen to you? In other words, you and I, we're not all that different than the Sanhedrin, are we? We're capable of missing Jesus, even though we would say we are committed to him. The Sanhedrin would have been committed to the Messiah who was coming, and yet they missed him anyway. Are we that way? What would it take for us to not miss Jesus? What was it that the Sanhedrin lacked that made them so prone to miss Jesus? 
What's missing is humility. Humility. It's the very thing that Betty talked about last week. It's a constant awareness of the fact that God is actually the one in charge. That we're only a part of this whole kingdom of God adventure. And that our part is really just one of invitation. He invites us. We're not the initiators. Humility, it's an understanding that God is the one who makes it all happen. And we're really, sad to say, not all that important. We sort of play a bit part in this whole kingdom of God thing. You know, the Sanhedrin was answering questions about how they could protect what they perceived as theirs. How they could protect their temple and their plan. How they could keep Jesus from ruining what they had planned on. Humility brings about different questions. Humility asks questions like, what is God doing in this moment? Or, is there something God is inviting me into here? Humility asks questions about what God is doing and what God wants from me. Humility is so important to us as a church that we've actually baked it into one of our core values. It's we join what God is doing. We don't make it up ourselves. We discern what God is doing and where he has invited us into it. So how do we avoid missing Jesus in this season of repentance? How is it that we don't just shrug off the places where Jesus is inviting us to turn and to be set free? How do we do that? It starts by having enough humility that when God points something out and invites us to repentance, instead of getting defensive, we ask the question, what if I was rude? You know, what if I was dishonest? What if I was wrong about sexuality? What if I have been dishonoring to my parents? What if I don't actually love immigrants? What if I do have to extend forgiveness to that person? Humility asks the question instead of being defensive and says, what if this really is the Lord inviting me to repentance? The only way that this happens is if we start start with two assumptions. The first assumption is, Jesus is always right. Jesus is always right. And the second assumption is, you and I are capable of being wrong. Jesus is always right, and we are capable of being wrong. You know, this is really just the essence of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, right? We've decided that we've landed on, that we believe that Jesus is God in human form and that he knows at all times in every situation what's best for us and that we are in desperate need of him to lead our lives, that we have made a mess ourselves and we need him to lead our lives. That's what it is to be a follower of Jesus and that is how we can respond in humility. It's taking stock of who we actually are and who Jesus actually is. In the kingdom, the dividing line 
is between prideful people and humble people. It's humility that pushes back against our confirmation bias. That's the way forward, is humility. Now, before I end, I want to point out one other thing in this passage. Look again with me at verse 50. Verse 50, the high priest says, You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. When Caiaphas says this, his intention is that they would kill Jesus so that the Jewish nation would survive as it is with all the pieces in place. You know, we have this governing structure. All that God has to do is drop on it and, you know, breathe on it and it'll work out just fine. So if we kill Jesus, the things that we've created that work are already in place. So we want to preserve what we've made. He has misinterpreted the problem and the solution. And yet, in spite of this, God's plan cannot be thwarted. John, who, who's the author of this particular gospel, John was writing after Jesus was crucified and buried and resurrected and ascended. He inserts this interpretation. Verse 51. This is written, like John's writing significantly later. And he says, this is what that statement meant. He says, he did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation and not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. John says that what the enemy meant for evil could not stop God's plan. Even though Caiaphas meant it as a selfish protective measure, it was a prophetic statement. They were successful at killing Jesus, but John says the death of Jesus wasn't just for the Jewish nation. The death of Jesus made possible your salvation and mine. Jesus died so that even though sometimes we miss it and we shrug off his invitation to repentance, he continues to invite us back. He died so that we might be gathered back into the family of God. This is the point of the whole thing. That even though the Sanhedrin missed the boat entirely, John says it accomplished God's greater plan. And that is your salvation and mine. Thank you again for choosing the Vineyard Altoona podcast. We're so excited to see how God will release his kingdom in and through you today for the glory of Jesus Christ. With this, be blessed, and we'll see you next time.